<clears throat> I'm struggling a little bit with uh, something. Um, I'm on the tail end of it, so thankfully, hopefully it won't be too bad, but I might have to uh, pause a moment here and there, so I apologize if that's in any way distracting uh, for you. We're continuing on in our study, of course, in this survey of church history, and we've been looking for the last number of weeks at some heresies, some heretical teaching that emerged very early on in the history of the church. Um, Not so much as just a historical matter, although these heresies do uh, rise up to a level of historical importance, but really also to make the connection to these strands of false teaching that are prevalent even today. And really, as I, I prayed and as we've referenced time and time again, there really is nothing new under the sun. These things continue to cycle back through the life of the church and through various epics of time. And, and it, I think the important thing for us as we continue to walk through these is to constantly identify the vulnerable points in the heart and mind of the, the average believer um, the, the points of, of potential vulnerability that can, that can expose people to uh, false teaching and kind of lead them astray, um, the places in our own hearts and minds where we might have a tendency to desire things or long for things that make us vulnerable to false teaching. All these things, I think, are important for us as a point of reflection and, and help us to really work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's not just that we want to have this academic exercise of looking at things in church history. What we want is we want to be sanctified. We want to be fruitful in the kingdom of God. And so my hope is that that will kind of continue to be our sort of our thought process and our, our, our intentional reflection um, and our, 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 our approach to these, these different uh, these different points in, in history that, that uh, give us insight into even uh, who we are and what influences us even today. We, we've talked, uh, uh, actually, early on in our study, we actually dealt with the, the heresy of the Judaizers. That was kind of in our survey of, of Acts in the first 30 years of the church's history. And, of course, this, this heresy that basically added to the gospel of, of salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, um, adding to it, you know, the, the, the ceremonial um, elements of, the, of Judaism and the adherence to the Mosaic Law as a necessity, a necessary component of salvation. And, of course, uh, the church had to deal with that. We saw that in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council and how that had to be dealt with in a very comprehensive way. And, of course, you see the Apostle Paul dealing with it also in Galatians very thoroughly, very passionately, very directly. You follow that, though, with Gnosticism. We talked about that several weeks ago. This, and again, just generally summarizing, this idea that, that infected Christian thought and Christian belief that was this, this merging of, of this idea of knowledge being the key to salvation and really a secret knowledge, a special knowledge that was the key to salvation and it, it merged in and kind of found its way into the church. We see a lot of New Testament writing addressing Gnostic belief. Uh, you see John dealing with it extensively, for example. Um, but this idea, it really had, it affected people's view of who Christ was, and, 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 and people's Christology began to shift away from a fully God, fully man incarnation and an understanding of Christ to this phantom kind of understanding that he couldn't be 
truly physical because the Gnostic belief was that all things physical were evil, and so he had to be the spirit being that appeared as a human but wasn't really human, and these kinds of things. So it, it ended up becoming you know, uh, full-on heresy and completely uh, assaulting what, is, what has been revealed in, 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 as, the, as the gospel witness of the work and person and nature and essence of Christ. We moved from that to Marcionism, and we talked about that for a couple of weeks. Marcion was this man who basically believed that the Old Testament God was a totally different God. It was, an element, it was sort of an offshoot of Gnostic belief, but he basically uh, set aside the Old Testament and really even set aside most of the New Testament except for some of the edited versions of Paul's writings um, and then a very redacted uh, version of Luke. Um, anything that had a lot of Old Testament instruction or reference, it, it, could, not be, uh, it could not be employed in the instruction of, of the church. And it was this idea that the Old Testament was, was characterized by a different God who was oriented toward judgment and toward wrath and was sort of an evil kind of God and that, that Christianity was about the God of love and grace and redemption and salvation and these kinds of things. And we talked about that, too, and how that's play, made its way into uh, the thinking of many in the church today. And though it might not be as pronounced in its orientation in that there's a complete abandonment or setting aside of the Old Testament as being the, the, the story of a completely different God, it is this mindset that the God that we serve is a God of only or exclusively love and gentleness, our Savior, meek and mild, and they they don't really contemplate the the severity of God's wrath and judgment against sin that was poured out on Christ himself on our behalf. I mean, you, you see judgment and wrath playing out in the gospel itself in, 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 it, in the most extreme kind of way in the, in the, in the sacrifice of Christ himself. But there are, there's also obviously lots of other places in the New Testament that deal with with the judgment and wrath of God and, and the teaching of Christ along those lines. So you had this Marcion heresy that basically uh, wanted to take only a portion of the New Testament that was palatable and, and fit the mindset of who God was and who God should be. It was a, a kinder, gentler uh, God that we wanted to that we want to serve and we want to follow, and so we need to make sure that our source material supports that. That's kind of where you end up with Marcionism in, in a brief and kind of cursory nutshell summary. We move today to another uh, movement, a heretical movement in the early church. Before we sort of step into it and introduce it, though, I, I, I want to just kind of get some, some feedback, get some context for, for who we all are, you know, how we all kind of arrived at this particular place in our spiritual journey and our spiritual maturity. I'm curious... If any of you, if you would be open to, to, you know, share it or whatever, if any of you in your, sort of your, the history of your, your growth and development as a believer, somewhere along the, the path, did any of you dabble in or get fully immersed in or have a complete, you know, sort of framework of belief around something mystical about Christianity or even maybe a charismatic kind of understanding of Christian practice. Did anybody ever kind of get led into that? You did? Well, during high school, um, I, probably all of high school, I went to a church that was extremely charismatic. Okay. Um, it was, I mean, growing up in the Southern Baptist Church, it was 
Now, you say we looked odd as though that's a past tense thing for you. Is that what you're clarifying here? Or I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. So I'm curious. So you were younger. So was it, I mean, do you, as you think back on that, do you kind of know, have a sense of what your mindset was about it all at that time or where you were kind of in your thinking about, were you just kind of going along with the flow and that's how you were yeah, raised? I, or? I, I mean, I, I very much was a, a people pleaser. So I fell in line just for the sake of, you know, not causing a stir. Okay. But I remember going home and even talking to other people, asking them a lot of questions about uh, the charismatic movement, not Pentecostalism, just because it was just so, I mean, you just had these people who were just falling out on the floor and I was just, you know, I, I couldn't figure out. I mean, it looked so authentic, but at the same time, you know, when I walked up there, I didn't feel anything. So I just, I'm like, well, maybe I just don't have faith. I, you know, I, hmm. I, mean, I just struggled with all that. Okay. Any, anyone else? Yeah. I mean, I was kind of charismatic church for a while. I was very familiar. Were you younger like that, or were you older? And right after college. Okay. So I'm curious to, to kind of the distinction there. Like, what, um, what was the... What was the interest or the the allurement, or how, how did that kind of become part of your? Progress, I guess. I mean, there's a couple who who really, I mean, the Lord used. Um, they're a very big part of my testimony, and they're very solid believers, but they're part of YWAM, and they're not really charismatic. But I, but they, um, I did ended up doing a discipleship training school with YWAM right after college, and then from there joined a vineyard church. Okay. And, um, so it was, it's funny because it's really, I mean, and they're still very much a part of my life, and they're very solid theologically, um, but they are still part of YWAM. So um, so it was really kind of through. It was relational. And, yeah, I mean, kind of, and just seeing them, like I was, I was seeing them, it was like the first time I realized, like, they're, Christ, they, they're Christians, and I say I'm a Christian, but they have peace, and they have joy, mm-hmm. and they have like all these things I was longing for. Okay. And um and like and and real, like I could tell it was like from the Lord. So it was like that was what sparked me realizing maybe I'm not Okay. <laughs> you know, really believing like they believe and then so that was really what led to um there was the stepping stone in in the Lord saving me and opening my eyes to So it's interesting cuz both of these both of these testimonies there's there's a sort of a reference to some kind of disconnect. Like on one hand, it was, it was like, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm connecting with this in some way. I'm like, Maybe I don't have enough. I mean, there's, there's a disconnect there that's kind of like in your head or you're acknowledging. And you, on the other hand, are thinking, I mean, there's, I don't have that or I don't have that kind of you know, peace. I mean, there's something that I'm missing mm-hmm. in that respect. So that's interesting. Uh, I, I had the same kind of, a similar kind of experience in college. Um, <laughs> There was a church. I went to Baylor University, and um, and you know this is like the buckle of the Bible Belt, if you want to call it that, right? And Southern Baptist grew up Southern Baptist, like typical. I don't know if you know what typical Southern Baptist is, but uh, it you know it wasn't oriented toward any kind of charismatic kind of of teaching or instruction or anything like that. Very sort of church program oriented, you know, and the youth program and, and all that kind of stuff. But I uh, got to college, and there was a church in, in Waco called Highland Baptist. And it was a Southern Baptist church, but it was Highland Baptist. And the, the sort of the, the nickname for Highland was High Hands Baptist, okay? And we started going there, um, 
for a period of time. The worship was really good. I mean, it was, you know, great music. And of course, at that time, you know, music was like, you know, the, the, the music was kind of a big thing uh, in, in my mind. But I, I can look back on that time and I can honestly say that, you know, I was, I was searching for something more. I, I was like, there was, there's something missing. There, there's, there's some kind of disconnect. And, and so I was kind of thinking that, that, you know, I was raised in this environment and, and there was a lot that I would look at my sort of my spiritual upbringing or my church experience up to that point that I would kind of look to and, and be a little bit critical of. And so in some ways, this was partly me saying there's got to be something more. There was a longing, a spiritual longing that I was trying to sort of satisfy, but there was also sort of a reaction to what I had known up to that point. And I would just say that, that keep that kind of idea in mind as we look at this next, this next uh, sort of heretical movement that influenced the early church, um, because I think that, that it'll sort of tie together some things that I hope will be uh, helpful and even challenging for us as we think about this um, as a point of application uh, as we wrap this up. So what we're going to talk about is Montanus or Montanism. How many of you have heard of Montanism? Okay, only one so far. Um, So Montanism, um, let me just give you a little bit of of background. Again, we're we're talking about heresy, okay? We're talking about heresies in the church. This is not just... This is not just some divergent views on how to understand this or that. This is, this is something that becomes full-blown sort of denial of orthodox understanding of Scripture. It, it's, it, it becomes something that is, uh, it results in some form of excommunication, of, of sort of a, a, a judgment rendered by the official church. Um, so Montanus, a little bit of bi- uh, biographical info on, on this, this guy. Montanus was a native of Phrygia. Phrygia is this region in Asia Minor. It's mentioned in Scripture uh, numerous times. It's in modern-day Turkey. It's just west of Galatia. Um, it's, it, we know that the Jews for, there were Jews from Phrygia, for example, the region of Phrygia that were at Pentecost. So the connection to the early church goes all the way back to people from that region, Jewish people from that region who were at Pentecost at the at the coming of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of Peter and all that ensued after that. We also know that the Apostle Paul and his companions went through that region multiple times on their missionary journeys. So the, the gospel witness went to that region uh, during the, the early outreach of the New Testament church. Um, it is the region that has that it is the, the locale of cities such as Laodicea, Iconium, Colossae, uh, those are, that's, that's the region that we're talking about. So this is in the sort of the, the heart of Asia Minor, in the heart of gospel witness, in the heart of original, you know, early church, uh, coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, contact and connection point there. So this is where uh, Montanus uh, was a native of. Um, he was According to a prominent writer in the 4th century named Didymus, um, he had been originally a heathen, a pagan, and even a pagan priest. He was known as a a pagan priest, a a priest of of idol um, religion. Jerome, another well-known writer and priest in the 4th century, even suggested that Montanus uh, 
was the, a priest of Sibel, which is this ancient Phrygian um, goddess or mother of the gods. And it was this primal nature kind of goddess. And it was the worship of this goddess was characterized by a very sensual, orgiastic kind of uh, method and form of worship. A lot of ecstasy associated with it, ecstaticism, if you will, associated with worship. And he he was um, known to be a priest in that in that uh, form of worship. He became uh, a believer sometime around 155 A.D. So we're talking about the mid part of the second century. Um, and he made his mark around that time from about 156 to 172 A.D. So this is the kind of the time period where this movement um, made its mark in the life of the early church. Now, to give you some context of what was going on during this time period in the church, and this is really important, and I think it's important in light of the, the sort of the opening discussion that we just had. The context is interesting, and I think it sheds some light on on how these things can kind of come onto the scene and even provide some caution for us as we think about um, various vulnerabilities that we might have to to different ways of thinking and and possibly even erroneous uh, ways of thinking. Bruce Shelley, a historian, writes this about sort of the context of this time period where Montanus was on the scene. He says, in the second half of the second century, a change was coming over the church. The days of enthusiasm were passing, and the days of ecclesiasticism were arriving. The church was no longer a place where the spirit of prophecy could be heard. More and more people were joining the churches, but the distinction between church and world was fading. The church was becoming secularized. It was coming to terms with heathen thought and culture and philosophy. The way of the cross was no longer rough and steep. So during this time period, you have historians characterizing the church in these general ways. Obviously, there's always exceptions. There's always pockets of faithfulness. There's always a remnant. I mean, that, that, we're not talking about, you know, everybody. But the general sort of, the general context, the general environment, the general culture of the church by this time was characterized by a certain degree of complacency, a certain degree of secular you know, collaboration or affinity, a worldliness. It was becoming more and more sort of institutional in its orientation. Um, it was becoming more social and cultural sort of aware and, and identified. Um, it, was, it was what you might imagine could happen to any, any church or any individual believer. And if you think back to your, 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 the days of your conversion and soon thereafter, and then you compare that to different seasons in your spiritual life and growth, is it not in fact true that we all kind of deal with you know, these ebbs and flows of life where we become complacent, where we, as John cautioned, we, we lose our first love and, and our affection for the Lord Jesus Christ grows dull and we become sort of just going through the motions. And our, under, our, our experience of Christian life can become rather institutional in its orientation. And I, I'm, I'm telling you, this can happen in any individual, 
and in any church. No one's immune to this kind of experience, this kind of thinking. And so this was, this was sort of a, a pretty significant sort of characterization of the church culture in that period in time. So when you think about these different testimonies we talked about, and there's this disconnect, and there's this sense of longing, there's got to be something different or something more, you can kind of see how there would be a ripe field for a reaction to this kind of church environment. And that's, that's when Montanus came on the scene. Now let me ask you a question before we go any further and talk about the core tenets of Montanism. What, what is problematic about reacting, particularly in the context of Christian growth and development, in the context of church life and doctrine and practice? What, what's, what are some of the problems with being reactionary? Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, um, I was just going to, it's generally feeling led instead of spirit led. Okay. Reactions are defined by external actions. Okay. It's different from a response. Yep. We seldom think through the subject before we react as opposed to biblically. Biblically thinking through the issue before we respond. There's a difference between the two. And For instance, it, it really is emotional. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone slaps you in the face, the reaction is to slap them back, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus says, you turn the other cheek. That's a response. Mm-hmm. So think about this for a second. And you guys are hitting on it. Um, God does not react. In his very essence, right? I mean, he's not like going, oh, wait, I better do this now because they did that. The very essence of God's nature and character is not to be reactionary. Um, And when you think about the implications of becoming like Christ, you're not oriented toward reacting to anything. Uh, Using the term responding, I think, is a, is a, a good way to kind of think about it practically, for sure. In other words... We're, we're called to live out the life of Christ, right? We're called to be like Christ in our interactions with people and in our comings and goings and in the mundane day-to-day all the way to the threat of life and death. It's, it's, it's very sort of oriented toward a sober view of who we are in Christ. We are living out the life of Christ. And so when you think about, when you think about adopting a, a spiritual or a biblical position on a matter as a reaction to something else, that, just that alone ought to be at least a yellow flag in your mind. At least a yellow flag. If not a red flag, it's at least a yellow flag. That oftentimes when we are reacting to something... We may be looking at a particular movement, a particular uh, body of teaching or instruction, uh, a particular you know incident or episode that is you know that sort of brings reproach to the church or brings reproach to the name of Christ, and we may be looking at it and saying that's not good, that's a problem, or we may be identifying something that's legitimate, 
But if we swing back and react and move in a direction in reaction to that, oftentimes we can find ourselves in error, in pride, in condemning that thing, in, in self-aggrandizing, look at what I know or look what I've figured out kind of ways of thinking. I mean, reaction to things is often the fertile ground of our own sin to be made manifest. Even if what we're reacting to is a legitimate problem, it's legitimate error. So you have this context, and I just bring that up as a, as a point of caution because here's, here's what happened with, with Montanism. You have this, this man and his, his cohorts that had a degree of orthodoxy in their belief system. I mean, they held to a higher standard, for example, of holiness and distinction from the world. So you have the life of the church is being characterized by a secular kind of worldliness, kind of a complacency, kind of like not a lot of distinction between what you might see you know, in the, in the, in the city square versus in the, in the life of the church. Um, just an just a, just a indescript, indistinct group of people, almost like it's a social club. You know, it, became, it becomes sort of cachet and acceptable to be in the church now. And for, you, know, you can make good business contacts there, and you, know, you can have good relationships, and you know, I've met some good people, and they want to hang out together. I mean, it becomes that kind of thing. Nothing more substantive than, than that. So you can see how you know, having a, a, a response to that that says, you know what, we really are called to a higher standard of holiness, a higher standard of, of godliness that, that sets us apart from the world. That's, that's a good thing. That's, that's not a problem. That should be something that we are mindful of, that we are reminded of, that we hold each other accountable to. There was an emphasis uh, in, in Montanist teaching on a certain, a certain degree of asceticism or sort of um, self-denial of simplicity. Uh, it did end up going too far and becoming too extreme, as these things can be. But, but it was, it was a, a sense of, of not being worldly in your orientation toward indulging the flesh and the things of the flesh. It's sort of this idea of denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Christ. So there was, there was some emphasis on spiritual disciplines and discipline of heart and mind that were, that were good and that were biblical. You could point to Scripture and say, yes, we are called as Christians to have a life that is oriented toward a certain simple discipline and faithfulness to, um, to the Word of God and to living out the life of Christ on planet Earth, not being so of the world. So that, that was good. They had basically an orthodox view of the gospel. In other words, this wasn't a, a heretical teaching that sort of denied the, the, the atonement of Christ or that denied the, the, the bodily incarnation of Christ or anything like that. There was a relatively orthodox view of the salvation uh, or the saving work of Christ and the person of Christ, um, who he was and, and what he did and how, how salvation uh, was purchased. Um, so that was a fairly orthodox view that Montanism adhered to. They also believed in the imminent return of Christ. They, they felt like that that was a point of emphasis. And you see that in the New Testament. You see this idea. You know, Peter talks about it extensively, for example. Uh, we must be ready. We must be sober-minded. That, that there's, nothing, there's nothing stopping or preventing the return of Christ. 
that we should live with a certain sense of imminence. We should live before the face of God knowing that Christ is coming back. That that should be in the mind of the believer. It should be something that we are living before and thinking about. It's not something that we just kind of set aside because, you know, it hasn't happened yet, so I got more urgent things to think about. This should be a part of the believer's, the believer's mindset. However, it did go off the rails. Uh, it did go very much off the rails. Uh, for example, this asceticism, this sort of this self-denial, this distinguishing ourselves from the world kind of emphasis uh, moved into things like, um, you know, celibacy is, is a, uh, an obligation. Celibate or, or not remarrying. If you, if you lose a spouse, uh, you don't remarry. So it went to this extreme of, of self-denial means that you're, you're only and exclusively focused on the things of God and really motivated strongly by the near coming of Christ. It's so imminent that you do not want to be entangled in any human affairs. And so it manifests itself in this emphasis on celibacy and a denial of marriage or remarriage. Um, it required fasting, for example, so it took a more legalistic posture toward a, what is an, a biblical spiritual discipline. Um, and it took its emphasis on moral discipline to an extreme degree. So it became very moralistic in its instruction. But this is not really what got its attention as a, as a point of out-and-out her- heresy. It really uh, went far off the rails well, one or two other things I skipped over here. Um, it, it, it had an undue exaltation of martyrdom. So it, it basically made martyrdom, it, it's kind of when you get to the, 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 the Catholic view of martyrdom being a qualification for sainthood kind of thing. It, it, that was sort of the seeds of that kind of belief. And it forbid anyone from doing anything to evade or flee from any form of persecution. So we're not talking about, we're not talking about um, being confronted with your faith and denying Christ. We're talking about just as a family, you know this is happening. We're going to go and you know, live with our relatives in another area. That would be, that would be ungodly. That would be unchristian. So it, it took some of those things to an extreme um, and, and started going off the rails in that way. But what was really problematic, what was most problematic, I should, I should say, about Montanism was it believed that there was ongoing revelation from the paraclete, from the Holy Spirit. Ongoing and active revelation. There was an emphasis on sign gifts as an ongoing normative uh, uh, experience of the church, but especially prophecy. The, the emphasis was on prophetic utterance. Um, he had two prophetesses that were his sort of his companions in this movement. Uh, Prisca or Priscilla is another name uh, for it, and then Maximilla. And here's what Shelley says about them. Uh, Montanus and his two female prophetesses went about prophesying in the name of the Spirit and foretelling the speedy second coming of Christ. But here's the catch. Now remember his background, right? They spoke in a state of ecstasy as though their personalities were suspended while the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, spoke in them. Montanus 
and his prophetesses were convinced that they were the God-given instruments of revelation, the lyres across which the Spirit swept to play a new song. Montanism was characterized by ongoing revelation by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the, this was now the age of the Holy Spirit was the Montanist belief. It was the age of the Holy Spirit in which the Spirit was revealing to them. Now, here's the thing. They would, they would articulate that they were uttering the very words of the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't just an idea of, of um, ecstatic utterance. It was legitimate belief and conviction that they were the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit providing revelation that was authoritative, authoritative revelation. And so this is what, this is what led to their uh, identification as heretics and their ultimate excommunication from the church. But it was a movement that gained strong footing and adherence. People were very fascinated and sort of enthralled by the ecstatic demonstration that became a bit of an elixir, an addictive elixir for people. People's spiritual sense of connectedness or, or vitality became associated with their experience of this prophetic utterance. So in other words, spiritual life and godliness was not manifest in simple obedience and faithfulness to the truth. It was manifested through, in and through, connection with the Holy Spirit in these extravagant, sign-based kinds of ways. In other words, it characterized people's understanding of Christian life and experience and practice, particularly in the life of the church, and particularly in the life of worship. And so, when you're speaking with this kind of quote-unquote authority, then you can begin to mandate certain kinds of behaviors, and that be assumed to be from God. For example, things like celibacy as something that's, that's godly. Eschatologically, they predicted the second coming of Christ, and they predicted that the new Jerusalem would be restored, but it wouldn't be restored in Jerusalem, it would be restored in Phrygia. And they picked the place. And they were ultimately exposed for false prophecy because that did not come to pass. And so they were held to a standard of Old Testament prophecy and even New Testament prophecy that exposed them as false prophets. And they were ultimately excommunicated. Now, to kind of bring this back full circle, obviously you have this significant problem that everybody's mind is going to go to, and that is that you know, if there's ongoing revelation, then like, where does it begin? Where does it end? I mean, how does it? How do we? How do we know that it's not going to change tomorrow? I mean, there's sort of a, it sort of strikes against our sense of coherence and and sort of a, you know trying to think rationally about what your next step is supposed to be. If ongoing revelation is a thing, you can't count on anything, right? You have to wait till the next message comes to make sure that what you're doing now is not going to be sort of nuanced into something different tomorrow. But the key here in all of this, and the allurement that I think is characteristic of this way of thinking and the way people get caught up into this, and I mean, you can, everybody knows this is going on like 
in, in massive ways, right? I mean, it's a worldwide, this kind of prophetic utterance way of thinking and understanding. It's massive. It's a massive movement, and it, it brings people in in droves, uh, particularly you know, around the world, but also here. Um, what happens is that people become attached, almost like an addiction, like there's, it's like a spiritual addiction. You become, uh, your sense of genuine spiritual life and faith is associated with this, not with basic elements of discipleship and faithfulness. This also brings up the question, and if this is a question that has been a part of the history of the church, um, you know, it's, it's been something that's been debated you know, over the centuries. But it brings up the question that I want to take up next week and really, and really deal with of what is the place of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit in the life of the church? And of course, um, you have the two sort of prevailing views and they're ended by ism, which makes them sound like something bad. I mean, you got atheism, you got pragmatism, well, you've also got Cessationism, which is that the sign gifts, the miraculous and sign gifts, have ceased with the passing of the apostles. And then you've got continuationism, which means that they are still for today. So we're going to talk about these two views and really you know, our, our, our view as a church as well um, and kind of deal with this because it's, it's definitely something that we should have a clear mind about and a clear understanding about. Um, but, but I want to kind of bring us back to this principle of what does it mean to know Christ, to walk faithfully with Christ? In other words, what do you do or how do you respond to those ebbs and flows in your spiritual walk and your spiritual life where you don't feel very connected to your Savior? What, what's, what's the remedy for that? Or, or should we do something different? Or should we take on some kind of new method or approach, or what's the book that we need to read, or, or whatever. I mean, we're, we're, we kind of recognize we've got a problem, there's some kind of gap, there's a disconnect there, and we want to do something about it, so what do we do? Well, I think that that's obviously a big and complex question that I, I don't intend to thoroughly answer in the next five minutes. Um, but I think it's helpful for us, and I, I, I talked about this several weeks ago when we sort of introduced this whole section on heresy, and we looked at the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is dealing with false prophets. And I, I talked about how, you, you know, there, there's this emphasis oftentimes in false teaching on, on nuance, on something special, something unique that you didn't know before, but if you, if you embrace this, it's going to make all the difference in the world. And if you think about all these various shades of heresy, they all have that kind of thing in common. It just kind of takes shape in different forms. I mean, Gnosticism is kind of probably the most overt in that it actually literally is secret knowledge by those who have that secret knowledge to be able to impart to you that is the key to your salvation. It's the key to really everything for you. But even still with Marcionism, there's this idea that you need to know the right kind of God, the right form of God to really be a Christian. And with this, 
It's the same kind of thread that runs through it. There's something more that you're lacking. There's more revelation. There's more experience. And again, reminding you that this is not just um, sober-minded speaking. It was uh, it drew people in with the emotionalism and the sort of the ecstatic manifestation of this. So what do we do? How do we respond or how do we think about this? Well, my mind went to, again, I go, I go to simple things. I go to, my mind goes to just sort of simple truth and just basic fundamental principles um, to just be reminded of, to not allow myself to get sort of easily lured into, well, I, maybe if I just figured out this little secret twist here, I'd have more vital quiet times or whatever. I thought of, I thought of the Apostle Paul. And I thought of a few different passages. It just just kind of came to my mind um, as I was thinking about this, about knowing Christ, about really knowing Christ. What does that mean? What does that look like? How does that play out in our day-to-day lives, in our day-to-day experience, in our experience in the life of the church? We have the Apostle Paul in in Philippians chapter 3, and he's basically giving his resume of all the things that he could credit himself toward boasting in, right? He, he kind of gives his resume of being uh, you know, a Hebrew of Hebrews and trained by the master teacher Gamaliel and you know, a zealot persecuting the church, all these different things. And then he gets to this place where he just sort of sums it all up in, ver- in verse 8 of chapter, Philippians chapter 3. He says, indeed, I count everything, all these things, all these things that would be to my credit, that would, to, that would identify me as a, a legitimate, full-on, one-to-be-respected man of God. My spiritual vitality, my spiritual credentials, all that. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Okay, I'm in. I want to know Christ Jesus my Lord. The Apostle Paul seemed to really know Christ. I want to know what he's after. He says, For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So it goes to a very practical attitude toward what gaining Christ means. it's, It's not about some new experience. It's about recognizing that Christ is our all in all and everything else is rubbish by comparison. In fact, the Apostle Paul is saying, I've literally suffered the loss of all these things. Like, I've given all of this up for the sake of gaining Christ. So, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So, again, a reminder about our salvation, to be reminded that we, do we have a righteousness. We've been given a righteousness that is not our own. That we have been made right with God through Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he goes on, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings. Wait a second. I want the ecstatic experience. I want signs and wonders and miracles. I want the stage ministry. 
I mean, do you see what I'm, do you see the contrast? It's just a stark contrast. It couldn't be more stark. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You want to know Christ? You want to walk intimately with Christ? You want to have fellowship with Christ? The Apostle Paul says, everything else is rubbish. And I, I, I've died in Him. I count everything as loss. And, and I count it as joy to share in His sufferings because then I know I'm identified with Him. Becoming even like Him in His death. And he goes on in Ephesians. Not He doesn't go on, but in Ephesians taking it from a different angle, he says this prayer for the Ephesians in chapter 3. This is after he's taught them about the amazing, sovereign grace of God in Christ Jesus that has been made manifest to them, that, that in eternity past, he predestined them and chose them for salvation, that they were dead in their sins and trespasses, and he made them alive together with him in Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 14 to 19 in Ephesians, he prays this for the Ephesians. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant to you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, the Apostle Paul is praying for the Ephesians that all this instruction about the greatness and grandeur and majesty of your salvation in Christ, and how massively undeserved it is for you. And how this demonstrates to you a kind of love that is unfathomable, but I want you to be able to fathom it by His Spirit. That that would so enliven your heart and mind around the things of God that you don't need anything else. That I don't need anything else to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So knowing Christ is identifying with Christ, identifying with Him in His suffering and in His death, counting all things as loss, and also living in the light of His amazing love that He demonstrated to us in Christ and making us righteous before God. And that should enliven us. It should bring vitality to our souls. It should nourish us. It should, as the Apostle Paul says, fill us with all the fullness of God. So we're not reacting to seasons of spiritual doubt or disengagement with going and searching for some kind of quick spiritual fix. We're just pursuing faithfulness in living out the life of Christ in this world that does result in us losing our lives in this world in one way or another. And we are 
reflecting upon and meditating upon the great love of God in Christ Jesus that he bestowed upon us even in eternity past. And that in this life, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive together with him. And that kind of love, if we would just get our heads around it, we would be filled to the fullness of God. We don't need a new prophetic utterance. We don't need some ecstatic experience to walk in genuine spiritual life. And we certainly don't want to be reactionary to those seasons of doubt and discouragement and complacency that we do have to endure and walk through from time to time. Well, next time we're going to kind of unpack this cessation and cessationism, continuationism kind of debate as just a, a jumping off point from this particular heresy. And um, I'm looking forward to that. Any final thoughts before we pray? Well, one point about, especially since you were talking about Marxianism and then um, this monasticism, which, which eventually led to the, the uh, monastic movement and it led to um, monasteries mm-hmm. and complete withdrawal from the world. That's not what Paul's talking about when he talks about, I count all of these things that I did in life. Paul even called it dung. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not talking about that because those are all temporal things that don't lead me anywhere. He's talking about suffering with Christ. Mm-hmm. He's talking about <clears throat> approaching that suffering with joy. Mm-hmm. The same joy that Christ used when he fixed his gaze on Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. When he counted it as joy to go to the cross. When he counted it as joy to do what the Father had sent him to do. Mm-hmm. And we are to live out that. Yep. Not from a legalistic, I'm going to give up anything in this life except myself. Mm-hmm. That's good. It's good. In the beginning, you quoted, I forget who it was, but they said the way of the cross is no longer rough or steep. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me think of Romans 5, where we have this progression of what leads to hope. And our culture says, you can't have hope with suffering. But Romans 5 says suffering is the first step of that process. Mm-hmm. But we, wanna, we don't want that rough and steep road. Mm-hmm. We want we want to just have hope without right. the suffering, the perseverance, which builds the character. And so, yeah. Um, Good reminder. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed.